Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Worry, and joining me on the line is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, you've been playing a lot of ZNR, but I see you strayed to the land of Eldraine. Is ZNR still in goat contention for you? I have something to report to you, Ben. It is not in goat contention for me. It is not no longer in contention for the greatest of all time set. And that was honestly, I had come to that conclusion even before doing the throne of Eldraine flashback drafts on arena on Friday. I was uh, trying to find some fodder for my article for channel firewall this week. And I went back to our episode of making the final cut and looking at, I think it was actually some throne of Eldraine cards in that episode that we were referencing where I realized they're just like, there's like a lot of overarching synergy, but there's not a lot of like pockets of synergy. There's not a lot of like two card things that like separate. They're not great, but together are awesome. There's not a lot of that in Zendikar Rising, and that does make the format fall a little bit for me. Yeah, I think it's it's like slightly above average for me. It's good. It's solid. It's like a B. Yeah. There's also a rock, paper, scissory aspect of the format that I don't find particularly fun, like because a lot of the best decks, like the tribal decks, the party decks, the kicker decks, all end up, you know, the good to great versions of those decks all look and play out the same. And so you sort of know what to expect from the other side of the battlefield. And you also know like who's the underdog in those matchups. And that kind of feels bad to have your opponent go like Island Forest and go, oh no, I'm going to get out-tempoed here if I'm, you know, some sort of big green deck or the Clerics deck is going to be able to outlife me if I'm an aggro deck, you know, like that that feels kind of bad. Yes, I agree about all those things. The other thing I realized is Eldrain's not my goat. I, I had no desire to go back and play Eldrain. Wow. Oh my God. I, I could not. I, I loved it. I got to play a Dance of the Mance uh, seven win deck the other day. It was super fun. <laughs> if it was best of three, we could talk. But best of one, yeah, I don't know. Oh, Ben. What a, what a, what a <laughs> boomer you are. <laughs> uh, so what do we got on tap for today, buddy? I'm excited about this episode. We've got my my brainchild here. This is my first article that I wrote for CFB called Synergy Theory. Uh, it was a, an homage to Quadrant Theory. Um, and I, I wanted to try to lay out how to approach evaluating cards for how synergistic they are and how that bumps up their overall power level in compared to something like Quadrant Theory, where you know, you're just simply looking at the card in a vacuum in the various stages of the game. But I think as magic is changing and limited is changing, especially modern limited, the way the cards interact with each other is very, very, very important when you're evaluating how good they are in the context of a format. Yeah, I am super, super excited to dive into this with you and, and basically just get to interview and pick your brain about this episode. You know, I was talking to you about approaching this concept, and I feel like rather than our usual tag team of a, a topic, I think it's it's a 
just going to be more beneficial to me and to our listeners to just sort of put you in the spotlight here. And and I'll just sort of pepper some questions in to, to move the conversation along. But you've got a lot of really awesome ideas that I'm excited to hear you lay out. But before we get into that, just a few housekeeping things. First things first, we've got the Patreon page, patreon.com slash Lords of Limited. It's where you can go to give back to the show if you so choose. There are many different tiers over there. Uh, the base level, you get access to the Lords of Limited Discord. You get shouted out here on the show. Uh, otherwise, you get access to our show notes in advance the episode. You can get access to all of our draft and deck picks that, that Ben and I do week after week and get our thoughts on those. You can get access to a private section of the Discord, which we're going to be adding a, a sweet little feature here in just a little bit. So we'll be excited to announce that maybe next week. We've also got free coaching sessions for the very top tier of folks who want to uh, to really up their limited game. Uh, and as I said, we shout out our new patrons each and every week. So this week, we're welcoming to the fold Fitzwolf, Adam, Malcolm, Charlie, Clem, and I love this aim. Please make more podcasts. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah, I cannot say thank you enough. That making of more podcasts is up to all of you listeners. We're rapidly approaching one of our stretch goals for a free fifth episode of Lords of Limited uh, once a month. And, you know, we'll dive into other stuff, you know, like level ups. We won't stay hard focused on the current format, maybe so in some cube content out there. So if that is of interest to you um, and you've been on the fence about giving back to the show, please consider doing that. Absolutely. In addition, Lords of Limit is now brought to you in part by ChannelFireball.com. Great place to go for everything you need magic related, whether it's buying singles for your constructed deck. Maybe you've been like Ethan and strayed, strayed from the fold a little bit. Or if you're wanting to pick up some, some booster packs to draft with your friends when COVID ends, that sort of thing, head on over to ChannelFireball.com and make sure you use code LOL when you do to let them know that we sent you there. That really helps us out. Um, in addition to that, Channel Fireball's got some other stuff brewing. Magic Fest in a box is still going strong. That's a great gift for any of your magic playing friends. Basically, you get a bunch of GP swag, so promos, sleeves, deck boxes, a playmat. If you're missing all that stuff you would have gotten traveling to GPs, Magic Fest in a box is a great purchase for yourself or for a gift. In addition, Channel Fireball is... Uh, one of the places where you can get a new card game called Flesh and Blood. I don't know a ton about it. I do know LSV made some sweet videos about the gameplay, and the game is supposed to reduce variance quite a bit. So a strategy card game similar to Magic, but with less variance. So if you're tired of you know, getting mana hosed, maybe check out Flesh and Blood over at ChannelFireball.com. Yeah, if you got a little bit of the why me Ben Wernie syndrome, it sounds like a great game. Yeah. All right. So Synergy Theory, this is your your brainchild here. And it's it's based off of and expanding upon a concept called quadrant theory. So for folks who maybe don't know what that is, I think that's probably a good place to start. Yeah. If you don't know what quadrant theory is, I would push pause on this episode immediately. And I would go listen to Limited Resources episode 184. Uh, that's when Brian Wong was on laying out quadrant theory. And what quadrant theory is, is it essentially looks at evaluating cards in a vacuum in four stages of the game. So the four stages of the game are when you're developing, that's like those first, you know, three, four, five turns when everyone's deploying their cards, things like that, um, just developing their board. Parity, when you and your opponent are essentially in a stalemate and no one has profitable attacks, also could be thought of as a board stall. And then when you're ahead, so how good is the card when you're beating down, you've got profitable attacks for yourself. And how good is the card when you're behind and your opponent is beating you down and you need to be the one making blocks and things like that? Does the card catch you up from behind? And the quadrants are sort of weighted that the one where you're behind is the most important. Like a card being able to take a game that you were losing and flipping it around into a game that you're now winning is really, really important according to those quadrants. But what it doesn't do is look at the cards 
in context with each other. Yeah, I know that quadrant theory was a huge level up moment for both of us. I think it was your first episode of LR. Is that right? Yes, it was my very first episode of LR. I came in strong. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's one of their most iconic episodes for sure. And it's a really fantastic card evaluation tool. But I, what I like here is that you've got that it falls short a little bit or, or perhaps doesn't reveal the whole picture of a card's potential in a format. Yeah, I think so for sure. It's a double-edged sword, definitely, if you're looking to use it during the draft process. What it ends up doing if you make picks, and this happened to me after I listened to the episode, if you make all of your picks for the draft according to individual power level, what you end up with is a mid-rangey deck full of a lot of removal, because removal is great when you're behind, which is one of the reasons that removal gets valued so highly under quadrant theory, right? Because it can take a game that you're losing, deal with your opponent's bomb or whatever, and turn it around to parity, or maybe you're ahead after that. But ultimately, it doesn't incentivize you necessarily to have a cohesive plan. So a lot of times you just end up with this mid-range pile of good cards. And I think that's definitely going to win you games of magic. But one of the most common pieces of advice you hear now in magic is to draft decks and not cards. But that's a pretty nebulous piece of advice. If you're new to draft, or even if you've been drafting for a year or two, maybe that's still a, a hard concept to wrap your brain around. Yeah, I feel like we're starting to to scratch the surface here of the iceberg or whatever metaphor I'm trying to use of getting to explaining that concept in concrete terms. I feel like each week we're, we're starting to approach as we you know get draft logs to review or deck techs on our stream of figuring out how to explain like, well, let's envision what this deck is doing. And then that will make clear to you like what the cards you want to go in here over these other cards that perhaps don't fit that deck's game plan. That's all sort of pointing towards this idea of synergy or of drafting decks, not cards or decks that are greater than the sum of their parts. And I think this discussion of synergy theory is really going to put Push us in that right direction. Absolutely. And I think, you know, if you are that person that's a less experienced drafter, what are you supposed to do to draft a deck and not just draft cards? And the answer to that is you're supposed to pick cards that have synergy. But the problem is synergy is this really nebulous concept that's that's difficult to teach and difficult to wrap your brain around. It's not as straightforward as card A is, car, is better than card B. You have to look at card A and how it interacts with cards B, C, D, E, F, G, and so on and so forth. And that's, that's a lot more moving pieces to try to put a value on. And that's what synergy theory is going to attempt to do here. We talk about how as early as pack one, pick two, your pick orders can change. And that is largely based on synergy. It's, well, yes, this one card A is better in a vacuum, but given my pack one pick, one card B works better with that card. And even though it's slightly less good in a vacuum than card A, it's going to lead to potentially a better deck if I draft that and pair it with my first pick. And that's hard to wrap your head around, I feel like, because you'd go, well, this is just one of the 40 cards you draft. Like, why would I warp my pick orders to do that? But it's all then working towards it has a sort of snowball effect as you progress through the draft of like, well, now card C is now going to work with those first two picks better. And now I'm starting to work towards the synergy. I mean, I think the tribal decks are a really sort of easy, straightforward way to think about that. Right. Synergy definitely has exponential growth once you start pairing the pieces together, for sure. So uh, and any sort of disclaimers you want to throw out before we dive into synergy theory? Yeah, I think the first one is that quadrant theory should always be used and mastered before you're trying to do synergy theory. Like quadrant theory is whatever, card evaluation 101. Synergy theory is maybe card evaluation 201, if I may be so bold. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think, yeah, you should definitely use quadrant theory first and then, then start using synergy theory. And I think the second thing that you need to know is that synergy theory is going to require 
accurate knowledge of the format in order for you to apply it effectively. And I do think you can start applying it as early as looking at the spoilers once the full spoilers released, but definitely it's going to take maybe a week of gameplay before you're really able to apply it to its its maximum effectiveness. And I do think Synergy Theory is going to explain why there are cards that fail the Quadrant Theory test. Like, for example, you know, we'll take a look later in the episode at Stonework Pack Beast. Stonework Pack Beast is not a great card when you look at it under Quadrant Theory, right? A two mana, two one is not the most impactful thing on the planet, but it's still a great card in the format and it's a high pick. But if you're just looking at it in the lens of evaluating this card, you don't end up reaching the conclusion of I should be picking Stonework Pack Beast highly. But if you look at it under the lens of what we're going to lay out here in Synergy Theory, all of a sudden that starts to make a lot more sense. Yeah. And I love this idea here. I want to just sort of underline, bold, italicize the word accurate in your phrase of accurate knowledge of the format, because that idea of like knowing what the best decks look like or knowing what all the archetypes look like or are supposed to look like, that's going to really inform your synergy decisions throughout the draft. 100%. All right. So we got quadrant theory as this you know four-pronged way to evaluate cards. Is synergy theory also four-pronged? Synergy theory is also four pronged. Um, And again, quadrant theory made a huge impression on me as a magic player. And so I wanted to, like I said, do this as an homage to that. So the first quadrant of synergy theory doesn't doesn't work out quite as nicely (laughs) because it's synergy theory, not quadrant theory. But uh, the first one is mechanics. Second one is taking a look at on color cards. Third one is taking a look at off color cards. And the last is called strategy compatibility. And we're going to go through and break down each of those four quadrants. But just a, a quick summary, synergy is as simple as mechanics. You know, if, if a card has the mechanics in the set printed on it, it is probably going to be synergistic with the other cards that have that mechanic printed on it. That's the general idea of that one. On color cards, you're taking a look at red cards that match up with red cards and play well with other red cards or blue cards that match up with other blue cards off-color cards, you're starting to take a card that is black and then see how it interacts with all of the blue, red, white, and green cards. And the more cards of each of those colors that it works well with, the more synergistic it's going to be. And then the last section is strategy compatibility. And that's essentially just do all of your cards work towards the same cohesive goal. If you're a beatdown deck, are all of your cards wanting to beat down? Or do you have a split of beatdown cards and control cards? If you do have that split, your deck's not going to be as synergistic. So strategy compatibility is kind of a big overarching thing. Also taking a look in the context of is the format fast? Is the format slow? The faster the format is, the more you're going to value aggressive cards, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think like M21 is a great example of that, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So let's dive into the first of these four sections here with mechanics. What's going on here? Yeah, so at the beginning of each of these sections, I've got what are called, this is my teacher coming out here. I love it. But key questions to ask yourself. And I think this is important because you really need to identify how to correctly think about this stuff. And I just recently wrote an article for CFB Pro about this concept of metacognition, which is thinking about how you think or understanding how you think about a certain thing. And so if synergy is this hard to grasp thing for you, what you need to try to do is understand how you're supposed to be thinking, which is really hard if you don't know how to think in the first place. So what what you should do in those spots, and I talk to my students about this a lot in band class, because I think it's really hard to teach what should be going on in your head when you're playing an instrument. 
And a lot of times that's what I do is I, I tell my students, this is literally what's happening in my head right now while I'm trying to play this passage. I'm counting this rhythm. I know these note names. I'm trying to hold both of those things in my head at the same time. I'm listening to pitch, whether I'm high or low. So get, giving them the things that are supposed to be going on in their head. And that's what we're going to try to do here with these key questions. And the other thing I would encourage you to do if you're embarking down this synergy journey is talk to people that are good at drafting decks and not cards and ask them questions and try to pick their brain and know what's going on in their thought process. So again, if that's of interest to you, or, or this article is also on uh, CFB Pro. So again, if you want to head on over there, if you've been on the fence about CFB Pro, I do think you and Alex and I, quick shill here, are putting out <laughs> great content over there. And again, you can use code LOL when you head over to CFB Pro. Mid-podcast ad read, off, <laughs> off the cuff, I love it. <laughs> I'm, I'm growing up so fast. Yeah. <laughs> so key questions here for mechanics to be asking yourself uh, as just a way to frame your thought process. How does this card line up with the mechanics in a set? Does it line up in a favorable way that it's going to interact in a positive way with those mechanics? And does it interact favorably with more than one mechanic? You know, if you're thinking Ikoria, was it on the the axis of cycling and mutate? Could it interact with both of those? Or was it on the cycling's humans axis? Does it does it overlap with multiple? Or here in Zendikar, maybe does it interact with party and landfall? Or does it interact with party and kicker or tribal and kicker? Can you find cards that are at multiple intersections of those mechanics? But the creatures that come to mind there are things like Acquisitions Expert, Amiria Captain, Grotag, Bugcatcher, the cards that you're like, I am happy to have this in my tribal deck, and I am happy to have this as an off tribal card because it's going to get a party bonus. And I'm also happy to have this in a party focused deck. Absolutely. So I think finding synergy can be as literally as simple as the card having the mechanic printed on it. So something like field research has kicker, right? It's two in a blue, draw two cards, kicker two in a blue. If you kick it, you get to draw three cards instead of two. Also, I think I'm on field research as the fourth best blue common now. How do you feel about that? I don't think I'm on field research over Cunning Geyser Mage personally, but I, I like the take. Yeah, it's it's I every deck that's blue wants at least one, sometimes yes. two. I just keep finding myself wishing at the end of the draft, that is the card most often I wish my deck had a copy of. That's interesting. We digress. I digress. I'm derailing us here. Uh, so like I said, I think synergy can be as simple as having the mechanic printed on it. So field research is going to interact favorably with cards that care about kicker and it's going to trigger those cards. So it's going to be, by its nature of having the mechanic printed on it, more synergistic and is the reason it's better than something like Skyclave Plunder, which is the five and a blue draw three and you get to look at more cards equal to the number of party members you have on the battlefield. Yes, I 100% agree. I mean, that just the pure flexibility of that card, I think, makes it better than Plunder, but then also tacking on the fact that it's got synergy not only in, maybe spoiling this a little bit, but it's got synergy not only within blue, but also synergy with other colors as well. And then the next way to sort of think about this is sort of the next depth of getting into mechanics is cards that enable the mechanics or reward you or pay you off uh, for playing cards with the mechanic also are going to have synergy. So for example, something like Risen Riptide, two and a blue, 05, whenever you cast a kick card, it turns into a 5-5 five, five until the end of the turn. That's going to play well with other cards with kicker and going to pay you off for having included cards with kicker in your deck and then you know go one step further to something like roost of drakes it's everything in one package right it is it has the mechanic on it it pays you off for playing other cards with the mechanic it's cheap it's absurd it's absurdly powerful but it's also absurdly synergistic due to the amount of kicker cards there are self-contained within blue and in the format in general i think this reminds me a lot of the concept we kept hammering home in a of 
column A and column B cards of like column A are payoffs and column B are enablers. And I think that sort of is being brought to bear here with mechanics. You know, I think cards that are just going to be either column A in terms of payoffs for that mechanic or enabling that mechanic and then huge bonus points if the card fits in both spots like Roost of Drakes or thinking of cards like Valiant Rescuer from Akoria. Maybe maybe even a card like, you know, Marasa Sproutling from this format, right? It, it has kicker, but also is a payoff for having more kicker cards in your deck. Absolutely. And I think if you take a look at something like Tazim Royal Mage, the, the very best cards are going to be at the intersection of not even just their own mechanics, the column A and column B things, they're going to be on the intersection of multiple mechanics. So Tazim Royal Mage has kicker, cares about then going triggering your kicker cards, but it's also a wizard. So it's going to go excellently in blue red where you know cards are going to care about a wizard in a non-blue red deck it's going to be a party matters type card so it does all of these little things super well in addition to just being a powerful card and being able to rebuy your you know good removal that you've cast earlier in the game or you mentioned valiant rescuer that was on the the cusp of cycling benefiting from cycling humans and the ability to make more humans and go wide which the humans cared about it was on it was at the intersection of all of those things yeah so you're looking for sort of like a a base level of does this line up with one of the mechanics in the format and then beyond that like how does it line up is it a payoff is it an enabler does it do both does it go beyond just one mechanic all of those things i think are going to like boost this in terms of thinking about it in the the mechanic quadrant of this synergy theory for sure all right so that's going to take us on to our second section here of on color cards and this i think this is something that we've started to talk about a lot on the show in the past few sets so what's going on here yeah this is just taking a look at literally do the cards within a certain color play play nicely with the other cards in that color how many synergistic cards are there self-contained within red that was one of the first things we identified about this format right early on we talked about how busted blue looked because there were so many cards in blue that worked well with all of the other blue cards so some key questions that you can ask yourself here about on color cards is how many cards at common or uncommon of the same color does the card interact favorably with Like, what is the sheer number of cards? And the higher that number is, the more synergistic it's going to be. And the other thing is, does this card make multiple cards of the same color perform better? So, for example, something like, you know, Forbidden Friendship back in Ikoria made so many other red cards in Ikoria perform better. So the the idea that these cards are going to help each other out, lift each other up, make each other better when they're in your deck. And this is a lot of times going to end up leading to pockets of synergy when you get outside of this color, because you can always play that synergy that's self-contained within that color in any color pair. Right. That's why this section I think is so important to think about is that the more on color synergy, or as we often call it, we say like inherent synergy within a color, the more of that that exists, the more flexible or or the deeper that roster of, of commons feels, the more flexible that color will feel in draft for you, because you know, you can just be like, well, I'm just going to keep taking blue card, blue card, blue card. And then I'll figure out the rest later because I know that all these cards are going to play well with themselves. So I don't have to worry about having synergy in my deck. I'm going to have that within this color. And then I can pair that with whatever the second color that ends up being open is. Absolutely. So if we want to look at an example here, Tazim Royal Mage is back. I have such a crush on this card in this format. Every format, it feels like I end up with a card that I love so much more than other people. And Tazim Royal Mage is that card in this format. So just a just a rundown here of cards it interacts very favorably with in blue. Chilling Trap, Expedition Diviner, 
field research. It's going to rebuy that spell, you know, net you three more cards into the Royal, rebuying a premium interaction spell. Risen Riptide, it's going to trigger the kicker. Seafloor Stalker, it's going to power up the activation unblockable ability. Shell Shield, rebuy that to protect your key creatures. Lull Mage's Domination, it is absurd with rebuying your control magic effect. Merfolk Falconer, you're going to trigger the kicker, the scry two. Roost of Drakes, you're going to be making free Drakes. Umara Wizard, it's going to send into the air. Windrider Wizard, it's going to give you a loot. There's so many cards that it has positive interactions with in blue. And so many, you could like take any other card off that blue list, and they're going to have positive interactions with that same chunk of cards. So is it, it just as simple as like, you know, making a list like this for each card and like the longer the list, the better the synergy is? I mean, it sort of is on one hand. I think that's the, the most basic way to go about it. But I think it also goes beyond that. It's not just limited to the sheer number of interactions. The really powerful interactions with one or two good cards that get played is good enough also. So you don't just need to think, oh, this this card is synergistic with nine other cards. It must be very synergistic. If it's got powerful interactions with one other card or two other cards, that's good enough as well. So thinking about like the trio in red of Grotag Bugcatcher, Ardent Electromancer, and Sneaking Guide. Those three cards, self-contained within red, give you a party deck in any red color pair, almost essentially, because they play so well with each other. Right. It gives you an absurd curve out of guide on one, bug catcher two, electromancer, potentially cast another three drop on that turn, that kind of explosive potential. And then you're also attacking with bug catcher as at least a four two, not only there and not only that, but then you have sneaking guide on future turns to make bug catcher unblockable pre-combat and then crack in for four damage. Like all that really works well together and is incredibly powerful. And the fact that that's contained at common, I think, speaks to how powerful red is. Absolutely. And so I think ultimately you're trying to weight the power level of the synergy that's created versus the quantity of synergy that gets created. And that's going to get easier with time. Um, and, you know, we sort of mentioned it, but these on-color synergies then get played in any color pair. That Bug Catcher Electromancer Guide Package gets played in red-white party. It gets played in red-blue party. It gets played in red-black party, which is probably where it's most effective. Mm -hmm. But it's also the reason that red-white and red-blue party are such good decks. And I've even done it in red-green at this point. Yeah, I had a Deathsea in my chat the other day, and he was saying that red-green party is just like off the heels of us being like, nah, red-green party isn't really the thing on the episode. And then he was like, red-green party is actually my most successful red-green deck. And so uh, with him in chat, I sort of took one of those, what is it, the veteran adventurer, the 5-5 five, five vigilance, that, that's mm -hmm, sort yeah. of like the payoff for that deck. And I did end up drafting a pretty darn good red-green party deck. And so I agree. I think you can, you can do it in all four color pairs. Yeah, and I think the last thing in we'll sort of get to this when we get to strategy compatibility, but cards that work well within their own color usually have a really high degree of strategy compatibility. They're usually working towards the same goal as well, which is also very important. Like Bug Catcher, Electromancer, Guide, all of those want to get your opponent dead. They want to curve out. They want to beat down. They want to keep your opponent from interacting with your stuff. And that's a really common recurring theme is that cards in this, it's not always the case. You know, sometimes there's some tension in blue where some of blue's cards want to be aggressive and some of them want to be controlling. But by and large, if cards are working well within the own color, they're going to have a high degree of strategy compatibility. 
Yeah, I mean, you can sort of see that all of these, what's so great about Kicker specifically and with this Tazim Royal Mage list of blue cards is that, you know, flexibility seems to be the word that comes to mind the most for me in terms of all these cards being modal. Like you can, you can do this thing when you have to, but then when you have the opportunity to wait till six mana and get this insane amount of value, that's what you really want to do. And the fact that all of Blue's cards here really let you do that, like they're sort of good early, better late type deal. Um, I think, you know, speak to what blue is trying to do which is like well it can be on the spectrum of you know tempo based it can also be value based and it just sort of depends where you land agree all right so moving on to off color cards as our third section here what are the, the questions that we want to be asking ourselves in terms of this synergy pocket yeah so you find any card and you want to look at how well it pairs with cards of the other color pairs so key questions to ask yourself here for off color cards first one is how many cards at common or uncommon of different colors does this card interact favorably with so again you know you've got this red card how well does it play with all the white black blue green cards and second question would be does it make multiple cards of other colors perform better within multiple different color pairs so for example you've got this red card does it work well with white and green and blue cards or does it only work well with white cards and if that's the case you know it's probably going to be one of those secret red white gold color cards um, that we always talk about yeah, I think that's really important to identify, you know, the cards that are monocolored in a format, but are secretly just like you only want them in this one color pair or they're at their best in this one or two color pairs. I think that can really give you a level up or or sort of start to see the draft in sort of a matrixy way beyond just what the, the cards you're seeing in front of you are. So we've talked about this idea of you want to consider the sheer quantity of good interactions with other cards that it has, as well as the power level of those interactions. And sometimes, you know, high power level, but only a few interactions is, you know, taking the cake. Porky Parrot from Ikoria is a great example of that, right? It was very high power synergy with only a couple of other cards, right? You wanted to give it death touch by mutating onto a boot nipper that had a death touch counter or cycling a void beckoner to put a death touch counter on the porky parrot and then once you did that it was able to machine gun down your opponent's team by you know pinging with a death touch trigger on that one damage which is crazy powerful right but you you literally had to have multiple copies of those other cards or like two porky parrot parrots and two of those other cards before you were really happy including it and otherwise, Porky Parrot probably wasn't making the cut. I guess Glimmer Bell was yeah, the other one, right? That's the one I was going to say. But yeah, I, like could, you, I could feel you hanging there, ready to hop in with that. <laughs> uh, also, Ben Glimmer Bell, did you think about that? Um, yeah, like I think, but but beyond that, right? It was a red black gold card or a red blue gold card in that sense, and and you really needed those specific cards beyond just being in that color pair to make the card work. Right. And so taking a look at something that's going to have just a lot of good interactions, something like Malakir Blood Priest from Zendikar Rising. So this is the one in a black 2-1 cleric. And when it ETBs, it drains equal to the number of party members that you have. It works well with every party card of every other color pair, right? You're never cutting this from a deck except maybe a black green deck that doesn't care about party. Blue black, you're always playing it, I think, even if you're rogues, because it's going to drain two, gain two. Black red, you're definitely playing it because you're probably partying there. And in black white, it's a cleric and it's going to get you a life gain trigger. Yeah, it's very interesting thinking about this section within the framework of Zendikar Rising because I think green is often the exception. And as as I guess I'm just going to be green's defender <laughs> in every limited set as we move forward here. But, you know, I think just thinking about green as being kind of an island on its own like it doesn't really care what color it gets paired with outside of like blue green kicker decks um 
it doesn't really care what color it gets paired with because it's sort of doing its own thing in in the sense of splashing and MDFC value or whatever uh, most of the time. And then that doesn't really matter. Whereas the other colors and cards in that those colors are often like, well, this is going to play well in, you know, black, white, black, red and black, blue. And then you sort of don't often think about green in that sense. Right. And that's one of the reasons that green is the worst color in this format, right? It is still playable and it is still good because it can do its own thing, but it doesn't play nicely with the other color pairs from an intrinsic standpoint. Exactly. Right. There's there's not a lot of, I was watching Beers SC stream earlier this week and he was asking me about green, I guess. I think he had had a conversation with you in his chat prior to me coming into the stream and he was like, what are the colors that you're like looking to pair with green or like, what are green's cards that make you go, oh, I want to pair this with another color. And that's just not how that color works in the format, really, in my mind. Right. It's not. Certainly at the common and uncommon level, maybe at the uncommon level a little bit, but really you need to open powerful green cards before Mm -hmm. you're incentivized to go down the green route. If you're going into a deck at the common and uncommon level, it by and large shouldn't be a green deck in my opinion. Correct. So we already touched on this, but the idea of secret gold cards then. So monitored color cards that are highly synergistic within a specific color pair, but that you don't want outside of that color pair. And again, these are going to be less synergistic than something like Malakir Blood Priest, but maybe the interaction that they have in their specific color pair is so powerful, again, that it is going to be more synergistic. It's not just necessarily, again, the number of interactions, but the power level of the interactions. So take something like Gomafada Vanguard, the one in a red 2-2 warrior that when it attacks, you can make target creature with power less than or equal to the number of warriors you have on the battlefield unable to block. That's a very, very, very good and a very scary card to play against in a red-white deck, but you're almost never including that card outside of a dedicated Red Warriors deck. Right. It's interesting. Cards like that, like Expedition Healer, or even um, the the rogue version of that, the one that has Death Touch, if you have another rogue, those those kinds of two mana two twos with types and then other upsides for their tribes are often awkward in those party decks. You know, they're, they're cards that you're like, well, this expedition healer is now basically just an Alpine watchdog, you know, because I'm probably not going to have a lot of other clerics in the deck. So I think thinking about those, the cards that aren't as flexible there or really lose a lot of power there when they're not in their own tribes versus the cards that perhaps are a little bit more flexible, like Arden Electromancer maybe is a card where you're like, well, this is, you know, it's not at its best in Wizards, but I'll still probably play it in Wizards. And then it's awesome in Party. That's less so, I think, one of those, you know, secret gold cards. Right. And something like Iridescent Horn Beetle, the four and a green, three, four, where you put plus one, plus one counters on a creature that you control. It makes insects equal to the number of plus one, plus one counters you're putting on something. You're only playing that probably in a green, black, plus one, plus one counters deck. Maybe if you have tons of green, plus one, plus one counter synergy, I could see it. But generally, that's going to be a black, green, gold card. Right. Yeah. Or, or in green, white with prowling felidars, but you know, you're, you're not, you're looking for that with synergies beyond it because green doesn't really have those inherent plus one, plus one counters outside of, you know, scythe cats or whatever. And then, so what you're going to have to do to be successful with this off color card evaluating for synergy is understand, you know, when you need to go for broad synergy, like early in the draft, picking a card that's going to go well in multiple different routes is powerful. Whereas, you know, once you're getting closer to honed in on, okay, I'm red, white, Maybe then you're really excited to take Gomafada Vanguard, but I'm not necessarily as jazzed about taking Gomafada Vanguard before I know I'm exactly red-white. But when you are red-white, it's going to be really powerful. Yeah, for sure. So that's going to bring us to our fourth and final section here of strategy compatibility. This one, I think, is perhaps the most complex of the four, would you say? Yeah, and most, uh, it's the hardest to nail down. Yeah, for sure. So what are our key questions in this section? First one is, take a card and what type of deck does that card want to go in? 
is the card aggressive? Is it controlling? Is it a generically good card that you're going to play in every sort of deck, like a removal spell? But identifying where it's at on the aggro control spectrum or the tribal spectrum maybe in Ikoria, but knowing what type of deck that card wants to go in. And the second question would be, where does this card fall on the aggro mid-range control spectrum? Yeah, I think this is something that comes up so often. Like, you know, I, I talked about this in the article that I just wrote for CFB about the 23rd card problem. We talked about this in that episode 125 of making the final cut of like having this this picture of what your deck is or or at the end of the draft, being able to make a sentence that says like, my deck is blah, my deck's game plan is whatever. And then once you do that, it should become pretty clear to you when there are cards that don't belong there. I think an example here that comes to mind often and for me is Jiraga Visionary versus Canopy Bayloth, right? Both four drops in green, both doing very different things. Are you an aggressive deck? Then you want Canopy Bayloth and you don't want Jiraga Visionary. Are you a value MDFC deck? Then you want Jiraga Visionary to bridge you from your early game to your powerful top end and you don't really care about Canopy Bayloth. Like those are things you should be asking yourself. And I don't often think those two cards should go in the same deck. Yes, I agree 100%. And that's one of the most common things we see when we do deck techs, right? Yes. And it's it's hard when you're doing the deck tech because the question that I want to ask is, well, how did you end up in this mess, right? Mm. <laughs> you, need, you need it, but you can't really ask that because... <laughs> You have to be polite. <laughs> but that, that's the question, right? Like during the draft, you shouldn't have ideally ended up in this mess where you have cards pulling and wanting you to go in different directions. And I think there is one more key question to throw out here, which is, and the most important one, how does the style of deck that this card wants to go in line up with the speed of the format and the majority of cards in the format or color pairs? So at its crux, how compatible is this card in the context of the format. Yeah, yeah, I think that that really leads you to understanding things like Grasp of Darkness not being a high pick in M21, right? On its face, this is a very powerful card, but black was such a weak color. The color requirement of black black for that card was so weak and it was such a fast format that black couldn't really keep up with what the Naya colors were doing. Right. So this this last, you know, category sort of says that Synergy doesn't necessarily have to be a two card wombo combo. It doesn't have to be these seven or eight cards, you know, all having the mechanic on them. Synergy can be as simple as putting cards in a deck that all want to work towards the same goal. You know, if you're in an aggressive deck, you want to end the game as quickly as possible. If you're in a controlling deck, you want to build towards inevitability and having a powerful late game, right? You, that Uber theory from LR, you want to have ultimate big end game ramp. If you flipped your deck over, you know, would your deck beat the opponents in a long game? I, I think there's something really interesting here that I don't know if you have particularly written down, but this is where I feel like you find the unique homes for quote unquote bad cards. You know, I feel like one of, one of my least favorite questions that I get from Twitch chat is like, isn't this card bad that I have in my deck? And, you know, the, the answer is often, well, I clearly don't think that because I'm putting in my deck, but I have reasons why I think it's going to slot in particularly well here, right? Like I am a green control deck and I'm worried about losing in the air and that's why I'm putting Tajuru Snarecaster in my deck or that's why I'm putting Broken Wings in my deck. I am a black-white life gain value deck and that's why I want Blood Beckoning here, not that people would think that's a bad card, but 
I also want blood price, or maybe I'm going to play a copy of spare supplies just because I want one more two for one in my deck to get more value out of, because I think that's what my deck's game plan is. And I think that's where you find those unique homes for cards that you very rarely play, but identifying where those cards belong can give you a, a pretty big edge. Yes. Last sort of point I want to throw out here about, you know, strategy compatibility, cards that line up well with the speed of the format or the strategy of the format, whatever that, that niche is those are going to be more synergistic and are going to make your decks more often as a result of playing well within the format or how you're supposed to play in the format right every format has a thing that you're trying to do and the cards that want to do that thing are going to naturally get a little bump up in power level yeah for sure so here we're talking about viewing decks on this like spectrum of aggro to mid-range to control where does that line up for you with with this idea? I feel like this this old adage of limited decks are just all shades of mid-range. Yeah, I think the more that we go down modern limited, the less that is true. I think Watsy's printing more powerful cards at common, especially at lower converted mana costs. And I think that leads to you really being able to build true aggro decks and true control decks. The The gaps on the spectrum are getting wider in modern limited. I do think there is more actual... I am an aggro deck or I am a control deck and you're really trying to do that thing. And I think the idea that everything's mid-range and you shouldn't really push hard in those directions, I think is doing a disservice to modern limited. Yeah, I think you can get a lot of boosts by leaning into that and and just really I go back to this idea from Ryan Sachs, this building and drafting your decks with optimism and thinking of like, don't put these fail case cards in your deck. Well, if I flood out blah or if i get mana screwed blah it's like no just build your deck the way you think it should be built with the game plan that you have for that deck in mind right and then when the game plan doesn't work you're going to lose but more of the time because every card's working towards that game plan your deck's going to do the thing that you want it to do so take m21 for example was a very aggressive format right so cards that fell on the control end of the spectrum were naturally less synergistic and compatible with a smaller subset of cards in the format as a result. So this helps explain this idea of Drowsing Pteranodon and Land of War Visionary, right? The whole format, those two cards were duking it out for which is the best green common. Right. And there were, you know, considerations of, well, if it's best of one versus best of three. And I think by the end of the format, that didn't even really matter. I think it was just more about M21 is an aggressive format. And while Land of War Visionary on its face, you know, everyone, you know, you saw this card spoiled. It was like, holy cow, three mana, two, two draws a card. It's, you know, what was it? Phyrexian Rager, with no downside it's all upside now it's also a mana dork like that card seemed insane whereas drowsing pteranodon you're like what is this two mana three three this what is this moat piranhas in green doing here you know (laughs) and as the format progressed you just sort of got to realize how much more drowsing pteranodon fit in with everything the format was trying to do with what the best deck in green white was trying to do versus land war visionary was like yeah this is a powerful card but what deck does it go in right so I mean, if you put those cards on Quadrant Theory, Land of War Visionary crushes Drowsing Tranodon. It's not even close to close on Quadrant Theory. But if you take a look at it under Synergy Theory, specifically in strategy compatibility and some of the Synergy stuff, the, why is Drowsing Tranodon equal to or potentially even better than Land of War Visionary? One, the format's fast, strategy compatibility. Drowsing Tranodon was much more compatible with the majority of strategies that were good in M21. Green was best as an aggressive color when you paired it with white or red, and Drowsing Tranodon slotted much better into green, white, and green, red than Land of War Visionary did. It was synergistic with a larger subset of cards. You know, you wanted to play, you know, your 
pride malkins that put a plus one plus one counter on it you wanted to play your short swords those cards didn't go well with lana war visionary so it, it worked well with more cards because of the format being fast and because it was a beatdown format and it played the style of game that m21 wanted to play m21 wanted you to attack it wanted you to block it wanted you to have bigger creatures than your opponent and drowsing tranodon nailed all of those things so that's everything right that's mechanics that's on color cards off color cards and strategy compatibility the four sections of synergy theory how do we put this into practice yeah i think if we're taking a look at how to use this The dream card is going to be a card that's very powerful under quadrant theory and also very synergistic as we laid out here under synergy theory. But it's going to be at its most useful where you're trying to identify cards that are not intrinsically powerful. So maybe cards that are not good under quadrant theory, because if a card's good under quadrant theory, you're going to pick it anyway, right? And you're just naturally going to benefit from the synergy that it has. Mm-hmm. But if a, if there's a card that's not good, maybe on face value, but is very synergistic in the format, synergy theory will help you find that card and help you rationalize why it's a good card and why it should be picked higher. Right. Something like a Myria Captain is going to be good in both, right? In Quadrant Theory, that's a good card because it's good in your developing stages. It's an evasive threat, so it's going to be good when you're ahead. It's going to be hopefully good when you're behind. It's going to be good at parity, obviously. But then also it gets boosted up by being really good on all four sections of synergy theory. Absolutely, 100%. So so what's an example of a card that maybe fails quadrant theory, but then you get to see a little bit more of of the bigger picture when you look at it under synergy theory? I think Sneaking Guide is a very good example in Zendikar Rising. So if you take a look at that under quadrant theory, I would probably give Sneaking Guide the grade of a D, something like that. So if you look at it in the developing stage of the game when you're curving out, 1-1 is not good. It's not enough of a relevant body size for paying for a 1-1. And you're not going to have the mana in the early game or the other creatures on the board to activate its ability to make something unblockable. If you take a look at it when you're at parity, sneaking guide's good there. You know, it's going to let you push some damage. The body is still, you know, not going to be relevant, but the fact that it's going to enable some attacks for you at parity is powerful, right? That's Mm -hmm. where it's best. When you're ahead, it's sort of irrelevant because you're probably already winning, unless you're solely winning because you're at parity and you're able to enable attacks with a sneaking guide. But generally, a 1-1 is not making you more ahead than you already were. Right. And when you're behind, it's a horrible blocker, right? 1-1 is essentially nothing when you're behind. Right. So a, a pretty bad card. <laughs> it's, it's very funny. So our last showdown video for CFB's YouTube channel was you drafting red white party and me drafting red black party. And I think perhaps throughout the entire draft, you and I were, I know I was going, oh man, I hope the sneaking guide wheels or I really got to get that one copy of sneaking guide. And one of the, the comments was like, why do you guys like this card? It's so bad. And I think if you just <laughs> look at it under the quadrant theory, that's the conclusion you're going to come to. But there's much more that this card provides. Right. So if you take a look at it under synergy theory, then I think it gets bumped up to at least a C, maybe a C plus in the right deck. So under mechanics, it's party matters, right? A one mana rogue is valuable in any red deck that cares about party. Well, and specifically that it provides, it's that like tertiary level, right? It provides a rogue in a color that doesn't have a lot of rogues. Right. And also, you know, enables the, well, I mean, that's sort of more on color, but right. enables the, so if we take a look at the next category with on color, it enables the ardent electromancer, bug catcher, fissure wizard sort of nonsense When you play that on one, you play a bug catcher on two, you play an ardent electromancer on three, then all of a sudden you've got three red mana from your ardent electromancer. It just makes your hand very, very, very explosive. Some other cards that it plays well with, Akum Hellhound, it can make that unblockable and then maybe you trigger some landfall stuff. 
It's going to power up your synchronized spellcraft. It's going to push through your Grotag Nightrunner. That's the two, three that lets you exile a card whenever it deals damage to the opponent. Shatter Skull Minotaur. You can have the dream curve of Sneaking Guide into <laughs> Bug Catcher, into Arden Electromancer, into Caster Shatter Skull Minotaur off of the three mana from Arden Electromancer. So gross. Yeah. And it's going to power up your Thundering Spark Mage. It does a lot of small things for a lot of good cards in red. Yeah. And that's all what red wants to do, right? Red is an aggressive color that generally wants to play nice with party. Yeah. And if you take a look at off color cards, it's going to work well with any other party cards from any other color and any creatures with power two or less. You know, you've got your whatever Tazim Royal Mage left around in a red blue party deck. All of a sudden, it's going to make that a more relevant body because it's going to push two damage every turn, assuming you've got mana open to activate your sneaking guide. And then lastly, strategy compatibility. You know, red wants to be a party deck frequently and it wants to push damage. And just in general, you're going to have Grotag bug catchers in your deck because you're red and that's a very high pick in red. And so Sneaking Guide just naturally wants to go in any red deck with Grotag Bugcatcher. Yeah, for sure. So I think I think a lot about Bushmeat Poacher in this sense from Akoria because I feel like a lot of people are like, well, do you feel like you you have to like make that work? Like there's stuff you need to do. And it's like, well, no, because if I if black is open, black is going to provide me enough inherent stuff like some you know durable coil bugs to sacrifice or whisper squads to sacrifice, whatever, that I'm not worried about it. And I think that's sort of similar here to Sneaking Guide. If red is open, I'm going to have stuff that Sneaking Guide is going to interact favorably with. I don't have to work for it. Yeah, agree 100%. All right, I'm going to try my hand at this, Ben. You're going to let me know how I'm going to do here. So I'm going to I'm going to throw a couple cards out here from Zendikar Rising and see how they work on Quadrant Theory versus Synergy Theory. All right, let's do it. So Stonework, Pack Beast, the party Prismite here. We talked about this a little bit, but I'd, I'd say on Quadrant Theory, the reason a lot, a lot of us maybe came in a little low on this card was that it's probably like a, a D, D plus, right? Two, two mana, two one with some minor upside. In the developing stages, I'd say this is fine, not great, right? You, you need a two drop. You want to have something to affect the board early in the format. This is fine in your opening hand. When you're at parity, I'd say this is bad, right? It's not a relevant body. It's not going to help change the parity of the board. When you're ahead, it's fine, but probably mostly bad as it's not impactful enough as a two mana two one to like continue to help you push damage. And then certainly when you're behind, it's quite bad as it's uh, not an impactful body to help you stabilize. Yeah, maybe going to enable a splash or something, but yeah, not not a good card. Right. But under synergy theory, I mean, we're all sort of, I think, week after week bumping this up in our pick order because I think under synergy theory, this is a C plus at least, right? Right. Like mechanics that it interacts with party and tribal and i guess you could also throw out that it helps splash so it's got some like green synergy as well on color and off color i sort of i'm gonna lump together here because i think this is one of the reasons it's so great is that it's colorless so it's incredibly flexible right that makes it a a higher pick than other cards it plays super well with every color and like i said except green and even sometimes it's going to do stuff there if you end up in a green deck with some party going on it's going to be good if you end up in a green deck that wants to splash and you've got maybe only one reclaim the waste well then maybe you can count on the pack beast as another source of your splash color and then strategy compatibility this card goes in every tribal deck every party deck and even enables splashes it just goes everywhere it does so much the fact that it is and the fact that it is a tribal card and a party card is so underrated like you're in whatever you're in a wizard's deck 
and then you play a pack beast and it's a wizard, but it also powers up your thundering spark mage and makes it so that you're happier playing your thundering spark mage because it's more likely to deal two damage. You know, if you've got two or three pack beasts in your deck, it lets you have a hybrid between a focused wizards deck and a red blue party deck or a focused white black clerics deck and a white black party deck. It helps bridge the gap and almost create other new archetypes because you have two to three stonework pack beasts. I think stonework pack beast is the forbidden friendship of the format. Yeah, or the golden egg of the format, right? It's it's such it, it is the glue card at common. Yes, agree a hundred percent. All right, I want to talk about <laughs> talk about the card that you know you like you like good cards, Ben. You like to see Royal Mage. I like other cards <laughs> that people don't really like. So, and I am on reclaim the wastes here as the number one green common. Um, so that's probably the, the hot take here for me for the episode. But I want to look at it under quadrant theory and synergy theory and see if. I can maybe maybe bump people up as well on how good this card is in, in the sense of when you are in green, not saying that you should go into green. So reclaim the waste under quadrant theory. It's like a D, right? Maybe maybe even worse. In development, again, it's fine, not great. It enables you to hit your land drops and curve out. It enables splashes if that's what you're doing in your deck. Fine. But the, these other parts of the game, it just doesn't do anything, right? It doesn't affect the board. At parity, it's bad. It's not adding anything to the board to help you change that state of the game when you're ahead it's bad because it's not helping you push damage or end the game and when you're behind it's of course terrible because it doesn't do anything to help you stabilize this card just like really fails on quadrant theory mostly yes agree but under synergy theory i think there's a lot that this card has going on so i'm putting it at synergy theory c perhaps even c plus so the mechanics that it interacts favorably with it interacts with kicker to help you ramp up to and hit your land drops to be able to cast your spells with kicker uh speaking of hitting land drops it's going to help enable landfall and speaking of like splashing and hitting land drops, it's, it also interacts favorably with MDFCs, allowing you to do that sort of like inherent splash package with MDFCs if you're doing that value kind of deck. Um, helps you, you know, get more land so that you can play your MDFCs out as spells more often than not, etc. Looking at on-color synergies with kicker stuff, you've got Vine Gecko. That's like my favorite one-two punch is Vine Gecko on two and then Reclaim the Wastes Kicked on three. Lowell Mage is familiar as another kicker card. Marasa Sproutling, you can Reclaim the Wastes Kicked on four and then Marasa Sproutling Kicked on five to pick it back up if you're interested in that. Uh, interacting favorably with Scythe Cat to enable landfall. Kazandu Stomper because you want to get to six mana and pick up those MDFCs. And then off-color synergies, you've got other kicker stuff in blue with Roost of Drakes, Tazim Royal Mage, Coral Helm Chronicler, and strategy compatibility. Green, in my mind, in this format, is often a backdoor deck looking to maximize the raw power from whatever cards you see, and Reclaim ensures that you get to do that. Yeah, I agree with all of these things here. I just want to knock on green a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> that we're on this as the green best best green common. And to be honest, my, my sort of stance on green's commons is that I don't particularly care because I'm never going into green for commons. Mm -hmm. um, and then once you're in the green decks, you're going to know which ones you want based on you know what your deck's trying to do. But the fact that this is a C and it's in contention for best green common is just a, a showing you how much green is underperforming at the common level, right? Red Royal Eruption is probably yeah. like a, B, a B plus into the Royals, probably a solid B. You know, Black Deadly Alliance is probably a B 
white core celebrants probably a C plus B minus, but just the, the gap there in power level between the commons at green and some of the Grixis colors. So I, I want to, I'm going to just, you know, rebuttal here about green and limited in general, because I've been thinking <laughs> about this a lot because I seem to be like if set after set, you know, think of looking at Acoria and how I liked that color a lot more than, than most folks. And certainly you and I had a, a great discussion about that color in that format. Um, you know, outside of the M21 sets of the world where green just is going to get like raw beef in Drowsing Pteranodon as a two mana three, three, unless we're getting that green isn't going to bring a lot of power to the table in limited. I just don't think that the way that design is approaching green these days is not, we're, we're just never going to see green as the best color in limited, I think. And so I think it becomes about viewing green in a different light or like viewing what green does provide and I think more times than not, it's going to be fixing, which is why Migratory Greathorn was the best green common in my mind in Akoria, and why I think Reclaim the Waste is the best green common in Zendikar Rising, is that it's providing this backdoor multicolor value splash deck for you. And it's not something you should be looking to get into, but it is a tool in your arsenal that you need to have if you're going to be drafting the format the amount of times that you and I are. Oh, I agree 100%. That all, I no qualms there. I agree. Absolutely. I think the most interesting thing here and we're going to look at a couple of you know in ways to evaluate cards against each other on quadrant theory versus synergy theory a lot of this brings up a concept that i think we're going to need to break down on perhaps multiple episodes in the future of this podcast which is that removal is just overrated (laughs) in general in limited i agree with that statement yeah and so a lot of these examples that we're going to have here are basically like seemingly derpy creature versus removal spell and just Continuing to think about the idea of like threats are better than answers in limited cards that work towards your game plan are often better than just like cards that are inherently powerful in a vacuum. And that's where we're going to come down on a lot of these picks. I, I had a coaching session the other day where we took a pack, pack one pick four stonework pack beast over deadly alliance and deadly alliance would have been our first black card. And I was just trying to hammer home like, you know, my student was like, this feels like fancy play syndrome to me. And I was like, look, black you're going to get removal. No matter what color you're in, you're going to get removal. And Pack Beast is like going to make your deck 100% of the time. And it's going to provide a lot of stuff. And you know, we did end up not being in black at the end of the draft and would have regretted having that Deadly Alliance over that Pack Beast, which provided a lot of synergy for uh, all of our red party cards. Preach. Pack Beast is gas. Well, speaking of Pack Beast, let's look at uh, another removal spell here. What if you have Stonework Pack Beast versus Rabid Bite? Yeah, so looking at this Pack 1, Pick 1, you know, if you're rating them on Quadrant Theory, Rabid Bite crushes Stonework Pack Beast on Quadrant Theory. But I think if you take a look under Synergy Theory, Rabid Bite doesn't perform super well under Synergy Theory, right? It's It falls into the problem of you need to have a creature on the battlefield for it to even do its thing. It's asking things of you rather than making the other cards around you better. Now, when you do have that big creature and you've got a rabid bite, or you do have that 1-1 death toucher and you've got a rabid bite, is it going to be a good card? Absolutely, but you're not necessarily going to be in that situation and your opponent really needs to not have open mana before you're firing off rabid bite. There are some serious drawbacks there as well. And then we've already, you know, sung the praises of Stonework Pack Beast under Synergy Theory. So I do think Stonework Pack Beast wins under Synergy Theory. And I think the amount of options that Stonework Pack Beast affords you later in the draft you know if you're hoping to not choose between these two cards pack one pick one but if for some reason you find yourself doing that i'd rather start my draft off with stonework pack beast than rabbit bite yeah of of course right i think that's like that idea of investing in your draft's future or just like 
it's flexible or it's going to make all of the cards you take later better, right? It, that idea of forbidden friendship or whatever cards you think of as those maximum glue cards, they just provide you so many options down the road where a card like Rabid Bite sort of pigeonholes you. And I'm just sort of off in general, the green fight spells that d- certainly that don't add power and toughness, right? Like Hunt the Weak really worked well in M21 because it helped you push damage, right? And and also enabled the, I put a counter on the Drowsing Pteranodon, now it, it can attack itself. So I'm sort of just off these these derpy green fight spells and I'm off the pacifism effects, Ben. I'm done. <laughs> it's been declared. Nahiri's Binding is bad. Like the look at Core Celebrant versus Nahiri's Binding. And bad is extreme, right? You'll, you'll play it if you are in base white, but even the white-white cost, I think is a little bit of a, you know, thinking about a pack one pick one, that narrows your deck a little bit. Yeah, so if we're comparing Core Celebrant to Nahiri's Binding, I think, you know, Nahiri's Binding, again, same problems as Pack Beast. It's a removal spell. It's a hard-to-cast removal spell. But it has no synergy with any other card in the format, essentially, and gets punished by a lot of cards in blue, right? You know, blue's going to be running into the Royals. It's going to be running Cunning Geyser Mages. So that's a knock against it. You have to skew your mana base for it. That's a knock against it. Something like Core Celebrant, which I think I am on as the best white common, I think over Shepherd of Heroes, it's really close. Yeah, that's so close. Core Celebrant, two and a white, one, four. Whenever it or another creature enters the battlefield under your control, you gain one life. It does so much under synergy theory, right? If you're looking at mechanics, it's going to care about party and tribal stuff that's going on. Mm-hmm. If you look at it with on color cards, there's a lot of white cards that care about you gaining life. You know, put it with an attended healer, the three and a white, two, three, that whenever you gain a life, you get a one, one. Yeah. Of course, Celebrant and that card are best friends. If you're looking at it with off color cards, one, four is great stats in this format in a deck that wants to be defensive. So if you're some sort of color pair that maybe wants to have a party sub theme, you want to block you want to go late you know this is great in a blue white party deck for example and if you're taking a look at it in strategy compatibility it does well there too it's got a clear plan right you want to block you want the game to go long you want to gain life and you want to eventually overwhelm your opponent so i think core celebrant just does more things for you and in the decks that core celebrant goes in which is either black white clerics or blue white party primarily i think but it's very good in those archetypes. Whereas Nahiri's Binding is just kind of, eh, you know, wherever you have it. Also Red White Party, right? Like, I think that's that's another great spot for Celebrate. Because I think this sort of is an exception to the rule of, well, I want all my cards to work toward this aggro game plan. But Core Celebrant is just like, well, this is a rock solid blocker and it's going to gain me life. So if I happen to end up against any deck that wants to race, which I think will happen a fair amount of the time, then this card makes that very difficult. Yes, agreed. I mean, the examples that we have here are all sort of like seemingly derpy creature versus removal spell and like acquisitions expert versus deadly alliance or ardent electromancer versus synchronized spellcraft. You know, I'm taking those creatures over those spells basically every time. Yes, I agree with all of that. So if we're just trying to reflect here a little bit on stuff we've talked about, takeaways from the episode, I think first and foremost, I just want to throw out there that quadrant theory is phenomenal. This is this is not in any way, shape or form meant to be knocking quadrant theory. It's one of the biggest level ups I've ever had as a magic player. And I think you need to master evaluating cards under quadrant theory and cards within their own right before you start trying to do the synergy theory stuff. Agreed. And I think secondarily, you know, synergy is meant to be used to complement quadrant theory. It, it should be, you need to know the raw power of a card and you need to know how synergistic it is. And I think you need to make sure that you understand the context of the format before you're going ham on synergy theory. Can you use it during spoiler season? Absolutely. 
like this concept brewing around in my head is one of the reasons I was able to identify that I thought blue was very good going into the format. And I think that has held true over the lifetime of the format. But making sure that you know like what all of these key pieces are, you know that the format's fast, or you know the format's slow, or you know that party's a great mechanic and not a flop, that sort of thing. Yeah. And just reviewing what they are, you know, just as a as a wrap-up, a summary, the four quadrants, they're not necessarily quite as neat of a package as quadrant <laughs> theory, but uh, mechanics, on-color cards, off-color cards, and strategy compatibility. Those are the four sections. And I think it's possible for cards to score very poorly under quadrant theory and score well under synergy theory. And those are likely going to be good cards in the context of the format if, if it's scoring well under synergy theory. So just be on the lookout for that. And I think of the two, if you understand synergy theory and you're applying it with you know correct knowledge of the format and all of that, synergy theory is going to give you a more accurate representation of how good the card is actually is in Zendikar Rising Limited, for example. Right. And this is also the most interesting when it's reprints, right? Cards that were bad in one set and then excel in another set or have different applications in another set. Um, I think that's when synergy theory really shines. Yes. And I think it can come from a sheer number of interactions, synergy theory, synergy can, as well as raw power of you know, a more narrow interaction within one, two, three cards. So keep that in mind as well. And it doesn't always have to be super flashy, super fancy. That's where strategy compatibility comes in. Synergy can be as simple as all of your cards working towards the same goal or having the same game plan in mind in, you know, a cohesive deck. So go forth and synergize, my friends. Absolutely. Great place to wrap us up. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Thank you to ChannelFireball.com for sponsoring this podcast. If you are heading over to CFB for any and all purchases, signing up for CFB Pro, buying singles or booster packs to draft with your friends, please use the code LOL, all caps, at checkout to let them know we sent you there. You can find us on Twitch and Twitter. I'm at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. Ben's at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. Mr. is spelled out. We're under those same usernames on Twitter, and you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. Hundred percent. Absolutely. 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 Agree. Yes, I agree. Hundred percent. Right. Agree. Hundred percent. Yes. Agree. One hundred percent. Absolutely. Hundred percent. Yeah. Agree. Hundred percent. Yes. Agree. Hundred percent. Yes. Agree.